0: In democratic republics such as the United States, power is officially held by elected officials who are supposedly held to account by the electorate. In one of his last speeches, however, U.S. President John F. Kennedy warned the public against shadowy forces who hold power by operating through secretive networks. Shortly thereafter, he was assassinated. Alan Dulles, the man who had been recently dismissed from the CIA by Kennedy, was a 33rd degree Freemason, and found himself on the Warren Commission overseeing the investigation into the president's assassination. Secret societies, such as the Freemasons, and in particular those based at the elite Ivy League schools, such as Skull and Bones, have had a long history of power in the West, forming a cabal of rulers that, no matter the elected party, always seem to have a member at the table.
1: Well, I'm not a crook. I burned everything I've got. Military industrial complex. A new world order. But we are here to destroy the control over the industry of other people. I did not trade arms for hostage. It's
0: been nine years. And I'm on.
2: Hello welcome to the show I'm Nick and I'm joined here by Hank and Adam and perhaps we will have a fourth joining us at some point hi hey how you guys doing
0: Yeah, I'm good. Uh, Two quick announcements. Very generous Bitcoin donation from the wallet starting with the number 12YK. And then I'd also like to just tell everybody there were a few people confused on BitChute about where they can get an MP3 if they're not able to play the the video in BitChute, uh, which happens sometimes, unfortunately. There's always an episode for every episode we do on our website. You just go to myth20c.com forward slash feed. That is the XML page, which has all the mp3s you can either subscribe to it or just download it directly but there's always an episode and each page like without going to that url for the episode itself has the link as well below the video thanks
1: it's uh, myth20c.wordpress.com well
0: for now but you know the other one the shorter one myth20c.com forward slash feed will work it redirects
2: so today we are going rapid fire through the weeds on the Order 322, also known as the Skull and Bones, also known as the Brotherhood of Death. Now, this is important because I will set the stage for some content, a content series that I will be uh, putting out throughout the next month. And there are a lot of misconceptions about this, it's a lot of mystery and mystique, and rightly so. But I'd like to try to give a primer that's as clear as possible without Going too far down rabbit holes. So to start with, <clears throat> the probably the most useful source on the Order of the Skull and Bones is the work of Anthony C. Sutton. And I will have actually a lot to say about Sutton because I think his analysis of it shapes a lot of the analysis that you would see elsewhere in the American from the American conservative perspective that you would find among the John Birch Society. However, the Birch Society did not discuss the order in particular very much. And other people who fall in line with that sort of Carol Quigley, American conservative conspiracy type thinking about the events of the 20th century. Uh, they owe a lot. Sutton owes a lot to Quigley as well as others. That being said, I so I do, I do respect Sutton a lot. He was a great researcher. He died in 2002. Uh, he had a... Difficult career due to the work that he did. Uh, however, wasn't he
0: kicked out of like Stanford or something?
2: Yeah, he, he exactly. He there's a lot that can be learned from him, but as I, I and I did learn a lot from him in the past. However, as I get older and I learn more about certain subjects in particular, about the Third Reich and about uh, some other. Issues that he neglects to discuss uh, fairly, I find that his normative analysis is extremely weak and oftentimes like contradictory. So, I'll get more into that as we go along. But let's just do, what is it, okay? And let's do this: what is it without getting tased? Because I know a lot of people probably remember that. That don't don't tase me, bro. Well, yeah, that was a John Kerry like
0: campaign rally. Yeah,
2: and what did he ask John Kerry?
0: Good question. I don't remember. I just remember the uh, the, the meme that He asked John afterwards. Kerry
2: about John Kerry's membership in the Skull and Bones.
1: Yeah, I, I do remember that. It was uh, sort of a, an abrupt uh, incident there.
2: Yeah, he started asking the question, and then it went downhill very quickly, and he got tased. Uh, so, without getting tased, let's, uh, let's just go through it. It's... It was founded in 1833 and it was formalized as a trust, it was a, you know, it's a private organization, but it was formalized as a trust in 1856 under the Russell Trust, which more on that later. Uh, some of the first members of that were, of course, General William Hunt and Russell and Alfonso Taft, who was the father of uh, William Howard Taft. Uh, you'll see The Sudden if you read his book, which I do recommend if you want to go further in this. There's a lot of interesting, and he he does a really good job of mapping networks and just just showing basically organizational relationships of amongst the power elite. Uh, so there's a lot, you know, I always come back to little bits here and there when I need to remember something or follow a certain thread, but you'll see that he places a lot of emphasis on its German origins.
1: Uh that's something those sinister krauts at it again.
2: Yeah, and it's well they, he's trying to tie
0: it to the Illuminati. I mean that that's where yes, like White the original was the German guy Correct. who made that.
2: Well yeah, Bavarian, and it was there are very significant reasons to tie it to the Illuminati, which I will get into. Uh he would also though stress uh, Hegel and the education of the time in terms of the political technologies that are used in fomenting uh, problem-reaction-solution type dialectics in the 20th century, uh, and he's he's right to do so. They, these people were steeped in Hegel. Uh, that is correct. However, when it comes to what is is the Illuminati, a German organization? No, these are all Freemasonic organizations. That's that's the easiest and simplest way to understand what the this particular fraternal organization is, is, it's a branch of Freemasonry. It's a very specific branch in a specific country at a specific time. And in this case, it's America. Illuminati were in Bavaria. And there are, are clear links, and there are clear links in both the technologies they used outside the organization as well as inside the organization. It, in the American context, it is very unique as a senior society. And this is, of course, at Yale, right? And a senior society, meaning that people are only members their senior year, you are a potential candidate, your junior year, and there's no, you can't volunteer anyone, you can't volunteer yourself. Well, you can volunteer someone if you're a a patriarch yourself, but you can't approach them and ask to join. That's not how it works. And there are, these are unique, there's, as far as I know, there's no other senior societies in any of the elite colleges. There are, however, two other senior societies at Yale, that would be the scrolling and Key and the Wolf's Head, which uh, have, I guess, had less attention and whose members are not quite as as powerful in certain res- I mean, in some cases, yes, in some cases, no. It's, that's not especially important, but 15 are selected every year, right? So when Sutton wrote it, his book, uh, that would have put the total number of members from 1833 at like 2,500 So it's fairly small. And now, I guess it's around probably what would be 3,000. This book was written and then revised, I don't know, in the early 80s, I I believe. And at any given time, the way that those numbers work out, you have about 500 to 600 active members. Uh, They use familiar terminology. They call themselves the early initiates are considered knights, and the older initiates are the patriarchs. And then the outside world is, of course, Gentiles and vandals.
0: Didn't he claim to know this because someone sent him a copy of some documents from
2: these guys? Well, there's been various exposés, yes, but he was turned on to his research in them because it was the perfect thing to send to him because it really does. Like, Anthony Sutton's work was focused primarily on, and this is the thing I admire most about him, is that he tried to transcend... The ideological you know paradigm of left and right, and just focus on the money. And he so he, that's from that perspective that he was able to document the extensive uh, financing, both in capital and in uh, technology transfers to the USSR from Wall Street, which is his most his most useful book. He also did one on the Third Reich, and uh, while some of this is, of course true, and there are nuances we could get into, he draws a very dubious um, equivalence between the two. I mean, just consider, for example, Russia as a peasant society that would have, if it wasn't for American support and then, of course, betrayal of the white army, the Jewish revolution Russia would never have succeeded. Um, and in terms of just the amount of money, the amount of technology transfer and the conditions of the society... Uh, it's the equivalence is a stretch, and of course you have to also ask the really fucking obvious question of, well, who did the American military actually side with when the Second European War came came around? It, was, it wasn't with the Third Reich; it was with the USSR. So uh, he tries to do that, and he has its own his own his framework that he operates on ideologically as much as he tries to not have one. Uh, is he his? He takes that again, very American conservative. Uh, paradigm of individualism versus collectivism. And I can get more into that later because I have an extensive critique of Sutton that I want to get into, but moving fast here. Basically, the original makeup of uh, Lodge 322, which, by the way, you may wonder, like what, what do these numbers mean? No, No one really knows. I mean, there's speculation, but it's a secret society. I mean, that's the thing with much of what you could talk about. And people find this stuff very sexy and They'll make really it's it's many seem to be in a sense neophytes to understanding how power works. I mean, every all power has its mystery rituals and inner circles, and the, there are certain technologies that are deployed here that are that are specific and worth getting into. But getting wrapped up around the axle about some of this stuff is uh, it's that typical American conspiracy theory that really loses the forest for the trees. So, anyways, the point, you had old American families who made up the bulk of it, you know, the Phelps, Lords, Whitney's, uh, Bundy's, Adams, etc. And then you had the new money people who were brought in. And that's really what it was, was a coordinating, in the early days at least, as a coordinating mechanism to bring new blood into the WASP elite. And this makes sense because America has, you know, was... Had that ability for social mobility that you would not have found in the traditional world because something is created with you. You had a, something of a middle class. I mean, this is the getting to the post. Po, I mean, this is found in eighteen thirties is six you're getting to the post-industrial revolution society, and so you had newer families that were coming in with very little and making big money in the late nineteenth century and early twentieth century. Who uh, now were power players and had to be initiated into the into the game. And so that was they had a balance in those given 15 initiates every year. He had a balance between uh, people who came from Bones families um, who were obviously given certain priority and then new blood. And then you had sort of the families that were both of the old stock and they were old stock, but they weren't always old wealth. So in that case, you would have, for example, like the Whitney's, but. Uh, this is the very American thing. You have uh, trying to synthesize the between money and blood. It's you have that element of the blood and you have the the kinship based on it. I I think a good thing to remember when you're looking at this stuff is that it wasn't because some people will say like, Oh, is this a, I mean the two kind of most common things is it's just like some homosexual, you know, college orgy for degenerate wasp elites, or is it like some, you know, Nazi racial cult for world domination, right? (laughs) And you'll see something made of the fact that, you know, there was implicit anti-Semitism and uh, ethnic, ethno-religious tribalism, but it wasn't a real tribalism. What it was is the tribalism of class, right? And you, the class where, you know, if you met, met the blood requirements, more or less, you could be uh, brought in. And there was a eugenic component, too, at a at time. I mean, they, they looked for... Athletic gifts, physique, attractiveness, uh, as well as you know intellectual gifts. these were all important. And then you would do arranged marriage. I mean, what this was, in a certain sense, is basically this like grotesque masonic parody of a traditional aristocracy. And it degenerates quickly, as I'll get into and I'll
1: explain I mean, at the time, even the traditional aristocracy, like if you talk about infusions of wealth and new blood, this had been something that had been going on since immediately before the uh, the agricultural revolution yes. in the United Kingdom. Yeah, absolutely. It was extremely common for uh, you know people with prestigious land holdings they would marry in somebody with uh, with money or vice versa, depending yeah, with on how Jews. you want to look at it. Well, I mean, yes and no. Like that was an element, yes, uh, particularly in the Anglophone. Uh, countries but I mean you also had like legit like the Jews didn't invent mercantilism or like the idea of international trade or even banking or any of these things and there were people with money that wanted to translate that into status and power and people with status and power who wanted the physical resources to maintain those so it was a natural fusion all over the world way predating um, you know any taking you an American university.
2: And they also became uh, Puritans. But you're right. I mean, this is a process that goes on and this process that goes on has a certain quality too amongst Anglos because the Masonic elements were already present there. But to go briefly over the, like the rituals that people talk about, I mean, yes. Okay. So they sit naked in a sarcophagus and they confess their various, you know, sexual histories and, desires, etc. Uh, the, the older members, the patriarchs will dress up as skeletons and yell at them and then they'll have uh, naked bun wrestling. And that's about all we really know. I mean, they have some ritual, but there are, so the idea is like skull and bones. What, what is this? What was this all about? Well, they, what they would say is brothers under the flesh. So of course you're, you're, Building, and this is often Masonic principles, where what you're doing is you're creating an, a fraternal order that is loyal first and foremost to itself. And in the case of Masonry, it's international. In the case of this, it's just the the core of what made up the American Wasp elite. And the secrets of the sex thing is interesting because this was something, I forget the exact terminology that it was referred to by the Illuminati, but this was a technology that they in particular used. And E. Michael Jones talks about this. I believe that they called it soul spying, but it's a confessional process. So it's a, like a secular confessional process that often focuses around sex. And it has a couple purposes. Uh, obviously, it dissolves uh, certain ego-related inhibitions to total commitment to a group activity, to group consensus, but it also allows for the more inner circle to know what where your triggers are, you know, to be able to control you in a certain way. And the flesh is symbolic of, you know, the lust of the flesh and lust of the flesh being the most useful ways to control a man. So brothers under the flesh uh, implies that you're beyond the control of that. Uh, Because you're all in it together, but there's still a hierarchical order within an organization like this. And so you can be manipulated by uh, the superiors in the case of, uh, let's say, you had certain proclivities that involved children or uh, homosexual proclivities. Or, I guess, in a less nefarious sense, just to make sure that you don't marry the wrong person. People can kind of keep tabs on you because they want to... You know, you're going to be married into a certain family for a certain reason, and others have a reason for that. Perhaps you have a daughter that needs to be married off to a Jew, uh, whatever it may be.
1: And, and let me point out, that like, this works both ways, and it doesn't actually require any of these things to be true. Like, the, these are actually fairly standard frat or um, kind of, you know, young male bonding behavior. Like, bro, like, who's the grossest chick you've ever done? Like, I mean, that's the very sophomore and juvenile and uninvolved version of it. But, like, the response to that in the context of power is indicative, regardless of whether your answer is true, about your willingness to affiliate with that power elite, if you already have that dimension as a showing point. And I know that there's, like, a lot of subjunctive clauses in there, but let me give an example. So, as a person in the elite, you're looking for your guy because the thing that makes you elite is the fact that you have guys that do stuff for you, that affiliate with you. So, if you're looking for your guy, you're looking for somebody who's willing to send a costly signal that they're willing to be your guy. In other words, like you want a implicit guarantee that you have dirt on them and they have some amount of dirt or connection to you beyond, you know, mere money or something else that can be outweighed by a lengthy prison sentence. So usually the way that this works is that in a mafia context, it's like, well, I can just kill you and, and, Like, in return, you get compensated very, very well. In the context of more kind of uh, evolved and personal um, contexts, if you say, hey, I like to fuck children, that's not necessarily actually even dependent on you actually wanting to fuck children. That just indicates, hey, I'm on the market and... I am willing to engage in this level of uh, whatever reprehensible behavior is demanded of me in order to get access to these networks
2: yes, and that fits in with the fact that this all the mystery surrounding this all the the mystical pretenses and occult you know trappings it has a even more powerful effect on the people who are being brought in from a lower, uh, economic class. So they're, they can easily be made to commit even more so than one who's always grown up around this. Well, they're, they're more so. desperate you would assume.
0: And I think one of the reasons there's a lot of satanic symbology used in this stuff is I think it's very analogous to what Hank was saying as to what you would have to go through in order to become part of this club. It's very much like making a deal with the devil you want so badly you know the the supermodel wife or the the money or whatever typical thing you know somebody who's a striver looks for but can't get on their own if they're willing to sacrifice something then they can get it but i think they have to understand implicitly that they're dealing with somebody that's dark and dangerous and well if they screw it up to,
2: there's consequences in a particular context of a sort of nominally you know protestant christian society you have to also dissolve those bonds you have to dissolve any loyalty to uh, some other moral code so the it takes the shape of uh, what you would call satanic because it has to it has to be something that uh, is a uh, what do you a, a recantation of uh, Whatever it is, the dogma that you grew up with. I mean, this the same principle could apply to whatever the given religion of a society is. If you get someone to, uh, as part of initiation to do some kind of order, they have to denounce that, then, uh, or be stripped of it in some way. Then that's. I mean, this is why, of course, like the the people like e. Michael Jones have uh, have such contempt for you know, Masonic orders, et cetera. It's because they see it as a, I mean, the the order you're supposed to belong to from their perspective would be the Catholic church. And that being said, uh, I had another point actually, uh, Oh yeah. To Hank's point as well. So the other thing that you can do is because any organization has its own natural hierarchy within it. So it allows you if you have that solidarity of the inner ring, but not the innermost ring is still exists. So that innermost ring can then sell out the member, you know, he can sell the network or provide the services of the network unbeknownst to the other members of the network who believe that they're more or less on the inside, but not quite. Uh, So that's what makes dubious. A lot of the types of conclusions that Sutton would say, he would say things like straight up, like he would say that the United States is controlled by the order, which is, you know, very ominous sounding. And it's, it's like, eh, I mean, the United States, like, yes, they're, that's a network that exists, but you have to, I mean, this is a huge reduction. I mean, yes, they're at the very key positions of power, but what are their ultimate aims? It's better to understand that. And we will talk about the Jews, of course. Uh, so let's, uh, let me actually, if I'm going to talk about sudden, let me just get right into it. Let me read actually something from his book. Um, so he he says, <clears throat> Some well-read readers may raise a question. How does the order, uh, this is a typo, its families relate to Cecil Rhodes' Secret Society, Milner Roundtable, the Illuminati and the Jewish Secret Society equivalents, as if the Jews need secret societies. Uh, How do these fit into the picture? We are concerned here only with the core of a purely American phenomenon with German origin. It is undoubtedly linked to overseas groups. The links between the Order and Britain go through Lazard Freres and the private uh, merchant bankers. Notably, the British establishment was also founded at a university, Oxford University, and especially All Souls College at Oxford. The British element is called the Group. The Group links to the Jewish equivalent through the Rothschilds in Britain. Lord Rothschilds was an original member of Rhodes Inner Circle. The Order in the U.S. links to the Guggenheim, Schiff, and Warburg families. There were no Jews at all in the order until very recently. In fact, there were no Jews at all in the order until very recently. In fact, the order has, as Rosenbaum suggests, of course Rosenbaum suggested, uh, some definite anti-Semitic tendencies. Token Jews and token blacks have been admitted in recent years. Okay, so a lot to say there. So first of all, uh, one of the big mistakes that are made by the Quigleyite types is... They talk about this Anglophile network. But the reality is that after the war, there was not a consensus between the United States and the British establishments. In fact, they were often at odds. But The U.S. at this point had become the more senior partner because the financial capital had shifted from city of London to Wall Street. And the aims of Rhodes, yes, Rhodes would talk about a new world order. But to him, to Rhodes, it was the supremacy of the British Empire. It wasn't the globalist world state, um, the Tikkun Olam, so to speak. Uh, he was a he was a a man of the empire, and yes, he probably got played by the Rothschilds. Uh, I personally, I mean, people are free to draw their own conclusions, but I personally believe that Rhodes uh, was a true believer. Uh, he just was. Uh, Outplayed, and he well not just the yeah. the Rothschilds, but
0: also the Oppenheimers in South Africa. I mean, Rhodes paved yep. a, a big you know, road for them to get access to those diamond mines, and I think their influence was not really in alignment with the empire per se, but really just their own wealth.
2: Now, was Quigley, uh, and I guess more so, Quigley was he running cover? Was he uh, himself duped? Because keep in mind, Quigley Quigley's expose, or his rather, his like giant tome of a book, Tragedy and Hope. Uh, he was. He wrote this with access to basically the, the secret records at Oxford. They gave him, the, the, they turned things over to him that they had turned over to no one else and said, you know, write about us. Uh, so was he, I mean, this is pure speculation. You can make up your mind however you please, but he, there's a tendency for Quigley and for people like Sutton to talk about this in terms of like Anglo- Anglophile ethnic nepotism or something, when it's hardly true at all. Uh, this, is, this is the reason why the world state, the globalization process, is going to favor the Jews above all else, because they're the ones who are able to maintain their ethno-religious solidarity in dissolution and chaos.
1: And, and you through, see this play out, like if you want a specific incident, look at the Suez crisis. So yes. y- you have an example where the United Kingdom establishment is trying to reassert control over their like explicit sphere of imperial influence, the Suez Canal, like the the concrete manifestation of the British Empire, and the, the United States elite, particularly all of those CIA guys who are all at that time Harvard and Yale boys.
2: Yeah, and I should add
1: i should add the the CIA which grabbed the oss
2: the oss was a creature of the skull and bones so
1: please go on I mean certainly the networks coincided a lot but they were the, the,
2: they were the formalization of the networks that had existed before
1: particularly at Yale yeah yeah the u.s just blithely was like nah you're you're not doing that like that's yeah. that's cute oh look he's trying to get his empire back like nah not so much that's and that's not, not only, the arrangement now
2: yeah and not only there with With the British, well, and and look at Iran too. Look at the conflict over uh, Iranian uh, oil uh, between uh, American operatives and uh, British petroleum. Or look at the United States dealing with the rest of the European empires. Look at what happened in Angola. Look at what happened in Indochina. I mean, mean,
1: from from Suez forward, there was no sort of independent path for the United Kingdom elite. You had a, a Minor and losing Europhile faction, and a uh, eventually dominant Americano faction. Yeah, but there is no like. I mean, if you're talking about oh, the U.S. has an Anglophile elite, it's like well, you're you're going the wrong way there. Like that's yeah. not how that works. Precisely. It's like saying like Barney the dinosaur is a friend of yours.
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean, and. <sighs> The key obstacle to, I mean, because the United States after the war was moving to replace the formal empires, uh, formal colonialism with its brand of neocolonialism. And in doing so, it also absorbed, which is where this is all leading, but I'm, I get a little ahead of myself, but this this is where they absorb the old drug networks, particularly in South Asia, the Golden Triangle. And what we'll see here is a pattern where you have a relationship between these types, these Masonic orders, uh, drug trafficking, uh, revolution, and the Jew- Jewish American neocolonialism. And you'll see it, I mean, you see it today in Afghanistan, because what the thing is, is that, and Sutton will talk a lot about the dialectic process. Well, the capitalist dialectic was much more efficient than the Marxist dialect. The Marxist dialectic, you know, they believed that um, communist revolution would only come after industrialization, whereas the capitalist process was well. Let's fund some Marxist revolutionaries in a peasant country and uh, fund them partly with the drug trade, because of course, when you're a peasant, you can grow like rice or whatever, or you could grow opium. I mean, this is what's why Afghanistan is works the way it does, and why we see these things play out there to this day. Is that you know there's a big incentive for this, and when you also have these drug networks, you create you know local power structures with the drug enforcer cronies that can be used to implement a neocolonial process where you have, you know, Har- Hamid Karzai in Afghanistan, and Mao himself, by the way, Mao uh, allowed for uh, China to produce far more. I mean, I will get into this in a very soon episode, but Mao, I should add, was himself a, uh, pr- somewhat, somewhat of a Yale creation. Uh, he was like the editor. they the, Yale had a missionary school in China, and he was the editor of the paper there. And of course, the United States, just as they sabotage the white army, they they sabotage the nationalists in China. And this is how it plays out. I mean, the the goal is to allow for the communist they want the socialist revolution, the Marxist revolution to happen in this peasant country and um, centralize the society and force industrialization. Meanwhile, while, Pay for a lot of what's happening with the drug trade, and then come in and privatize it. And that's globalization 101. This is what they're operating under, and this is uh, this is their purpose. It's not like some WASP racial cult or something. And one of the easiest ways you can see that, by the way, is if you start looking at the names. There's a in Sutton's book, he provides a roster of what known names. Uh, he has it goes up to 2006, so I guess the editors provided it for the past four years because he died in 2002. But you'll notice that the names start getting a lot less Anglo. Uh, they, you have names from all over the world, and you also see women. So this kind of the the irony here is like the, the finance powers were using at the in the First World War, they were using what was left of the European imperial infrastructure. Two, you know, basically Jewish ends, and then in the same sense that the, the the American wasp leader used this way too, and this is what people like Sutton miss. They say basically like the puck stops here with the skull and bones. They're at the top of the they're at the top of the world, but it's it's a process. Process is a process of globalization, and we all know who's going to end up on top of that. It's the people who are able to maintain their 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 bonds and their loyalties in the face of the dissolution of the modern world. And that's the tragedy we see. Cause a lot of these men were from a certain perspective, great men. I mean, they had great blood, but the great blood was put to degenerate ends and subversion. And in doing so, the blood itself becomes uh, corrupted and debased and mixed with uh, racial aliens. And who gains? Well, the Jews gain. So, and we talk about race. I mean, the the racism was the racism of a country club. You know, it's just the snobbery to the other classes. They it wasn't. I mean, take for example what uh, Himmler would have said about the the Death's Head. Their their symbol of the Death's Head and it means putting your the community the, the race before yourself. And in this case, it's putting the class first, the country club first. I, I think the the Bush clan
0: is probably the the best example of this in, in a public sense. We know who these people are. Most people obviously can understand. They had great influence. But if you look at the policy decisions they make, they really were to the benefit of a very small group of their particular network. And if you take a look at H.W. Bush, who was doing a lot of things during you know, the Reagan administration prior to his own presidency, most of his Actions you can tie it into Iran Contra, the drug running, NAFTA. It doesn't benefit the average American person. And if you look at his Uh son, who was trying to live up to his father, in my estimation, he did an even worse job with the blunders in the Middle East.
2: Well, and And, look at the look at the blood of the family itself. They have like a brown one now. His name is like you know, I don't (laughs) know some. He's like some Castillo. Yeah, I
1: mean, you talk about absorbing new blood. I mean, they they wanted to turn themselves into kind of this uh, Latino Castiza dynasty of the sort that you see in Mexico, and they turned their family's stock, because, you know, we might as well refer to it in those terms, uh, to those ends. It's it's a hilarious, uh, you know, attempted transmutation.
2: Yeah, read read Family
1: right. of Secrets. It's a great
2: yeah. book. Oh, I, I recommend that to the listeners frequently. And the, the Bushes, Adam is quite right. The Bushes are, because they've had, I mean, their membership goes back all the way. And they've. I think they've had more than, uh, well, I think the only rivals to that would be like the Harriman's and uh, I guess the Bundy's too. But you had Bush, you know, you had Prescott and then you had, uh, geez, uh, Jonathan Bush and James Smith Bush and. Uh, George Walker, of course, George Herbert Walker, and Derek Bush, Derek George Bush. I mean, yeah, they're, they're the Yaleys through and through. And then they also, they they made their attempt. I mean, like that was their play, was uh, moving, was the Yankee-Cowboy routine and setting W up as some kind of representative of Texas rather than a Connecticut Yankee, which is what they are through and through, to the bone, Connecticut Yankee, under the flesh. but
1: and it, what I want to like say about, you know you you look at like the physical transmutation. Like this almost gets into uh, Raywan Hawthwart uh, or however you pronounce that uh, that uh, Twitter guy who was banned. Like the power almost exists as a entity unto itself. Because you see, through the generations, you do actually go through this transmutation from landed aristocrats to a merc- mercantile empire to now something that is based on uh, sort of these these attempted racial politics, but you have the network persisting as the forms of the exercise of power actually evolve it's a very kind of a a spooky thing if you look at like how a family conceives of itself as an entity and how a power network persists even as the levers that it uses for the exercise of that power completely change
2: yeah as the blood changes the, um, the network remains because it's a tool and it's a tool of of the banks and the synagogues and that's that's where again, where it Sutton's wrong, that this is this is like where it stops. no, this is just a process where it's being eaten up. Uh, it's a vampiric process where the international power and in the process of globalization is swallowing these up just like it did to the European empires and just like and it was used, these people were used against the European empires. what was left of them? I mean first bring Europe to its knees by the war, which these exact people were able to set the stage for through their funding of Soviet Union, by the way, it was. I mean, just so like Bush becomes like the first ambassador to China, uh, first time they had an ambassador in years. Uh, under Nixon and Harriman was the ambassador to Russia, and he was of course a bonesman, and he was the one who was helping arrange these deals with you know the the Jew bankers like Schiff. Uh, this was Harriman is going he's going all, all outside of the formal structures of power. And this is the, the part that seems to confuse the American conservative. It's like the American conservative is is it, to him. It's like some kind of sinister and novel concept that you would have power that is that the real power nodes are going to be places that aren't necessarily a formal positions. So it's like, oh, yes, but but what does the Constitution say? And, and to them, and when you start to like unravel this, it's, well, what do you what do you ask? I mean, they, they basically say it's like the answer to this kind of situation is that you need like an informed citizenry. And if that's what you're saying, you're totally fucked. I mean, do you even iron law of oligarchy, bro? Like, it's like saying, fucking, you know, the jackals have overrun the plane, and so like you need to educate the gazelle, you know, in order. To, it's like no, you want the fucking lion back, and put everyone in their fucking place. Um, So, anyways, I mean, the other contradiction, too, is, like, when he's talking about this individualism or collectivism, I mean, deeply ironic because these secret societies all in the same tradition, Illuminati, 322, uh, just the various Masonic approaches. I mean, their great enemy was, at their day, it's the throne and altar. And, yes, as Hank pointed out, there was a lot of decay that already set in. I totally agree with him. But you push it over and make way for the world state was the idea. And and people like this, they just— Again, I respect Sutton, and his work is very useful, but it's just throughout his, his normative analysis altogether. It's just useless. Uh, what you really want is... I mean, ask these people. Like The question I have for conservatives in general, the American conservative, uh, if you have men who are too flawed to be trusted with power, then how is it that the men who are flawed to be trusted with power can be trusted to create a system that restrains power and you know, what gives you your fucking individual you know, rights or whatever it is that you're on about. I don't know. I think it's all dumb and gay. It needs to be thrown in the trash can. Uh, let's see. I think we got to power through here because I'm getting thrown out of where I'm at right now in 19 minutes. Uh, da, 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 da. Uh, yeah, whining about racism. Nazism equals communism. Yeah, blah, blah, blah. Like, this is the kind of shit that he, like, he has to make this equivalency when in reality, his, I mean, his thinking, I mean, this this whole idea of uh, this bourgeois individual bourgeois individualism I mean that that owes its existence in certain respect not you know it has it has its own legacy historical legacy right to the Masonic revolutions that are being were perpetrated by the same organizations that he's decrying here so it's there's a lot of a lot of contradictions that we don't really need to get in I mean this is the kind of stuff we talk about all the time but I mean, power, you know, ideologies are tools of power. So the conclusion from that is like, well, then what you want is power not (laughs) just sit on and whine about that. I mean, if it's a fact of of politics, then, well, just do play with them yourself and win. Um, You guys have anything while I reorganize my notes? I went on for a second.
0: Well, I mean, you were saying, how do we expect flawed men to create a system that can eliminate the ability for flawed men to obtain power. I don't think we ever do that. I think it's it's a perennial problem of political science and philosophers since the beginning of history. Uh, I, ideally, you know, you want the philosopher king, but it never seems to really last and persist. Even if you do get lucky enough to get one, his son or his successor is usually much less capable well, so, I think the, the price of freedom is constant vigilance, as the saying goes. There's really no other way around
2: it. You have to have people who are watching the watchers. There's no other way yeah, to it. Yeah, better yet would be... I, I mean, I, I can't say I entirely agree with that framework. But that's kind of what I'm critiquing here. I would say that the the answer is that you just want the right... Pe- I mean, yes, time and decay sets in. I mean, this is the decay of civilizations. So it's a fact. But you you know, reintroduce life into the civilization by taking the bastards and dragging them out of, you know, whatever office buildings they are and slitting their fucking throats and fucking their wives. I mean, it's, you just, you just let natural order reassert itself and you create a new elite. And then from there, yeah, sure. Time sets in and whatever happens happens, but yeah, such that's, is the that's a
1: hard disagree. Like power comes from structural aspects. Like you, 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 for instance, in a you know human civilization up until seventeen fifty or so, you're wealthy because you control land, full stop. So if you want any sort of balance of power or like you know, structural, Uh, structural stasis and your your governing economy, you want like a stable republic, Mm -hmm. then you need to have something that enforces a structural aspect, not by like legislation, but by setting up a competing power base to counteract whatever power base you're trying to counterbalance. I mean, that's so all I'm saying. Can, Hank, I just made a, I mean, I, I said it very crudely, but that's my point is you need, you need power. <laughs> right. But it's not just like power of the moment. Like power comes no, no, from something. No, you're, you're quite right. Like any, yeah. anybody can like walk up and like stab a billionaire yeah, to death. Of course. Of course. Like, you know, it might be a little bit more difficult in some cases than others, but you know, for your average one, like there's a lot of them. And if that doesn't actually diminish any sort of power of the you know of the form that's concretely expressed in your oppression. Well, so the way that this like reifies in Marxist revolutions or whatever is that, you know, you have, you know, this this kind of uh people power i I really hate to use the phrase but you're leveraging some sort of latent power base that concretizes and structures itself in some sort of an apparatus that can counterbalance the people who previously owned land and who had their claims enforced by state power which you now effectively control except for like in the modern context these people don't just you know blindly rely on the state for enforcement of their rights that would be really stupid instead you have actual access to those governing uh entities like you own politicians yep. you have access to like basically independent armed power, if you hire enough, uh, if you hire enough ex-cops that are granted the ability to uh, exercise their Second Amendment rights uh, wherever they please on the green face of the earth, as far as the United States government is concerned.
2: Well, this is the most relevant example to what we're talking about here. To your point, would be the uh, fact that these people are the ones who brought who built up the Soviet Union. And after the war, you were supposed to have, okay, Europe's been destroyed, we're going to get rid of their empires, and we're going to create a new world state and and absorb the Soviet Union in, and uh, we will rule. That was the idea. But then you had Stalin. And Stalin is what prevented the fruition of the new world order in the 20th century. And this was something that was, at one point, it was a creature of, uh, the, the Western elite and, of course, you know the international Jew. But then Stalin comes and he starts hanging the Jews and uh, throwing these people out and re- seizing the networks, the, the infrastructure that had been built up through this process, he manages to take control over. And this was the great cock block to the New World Order. And this is also what the burchers and people get wrong because they say that you know the uh, United States government was like working with the USSR when really the enemy was the United States government itself, which is what McCarthy sort of started to get, and why he had to be shut down by people like Lehman. Uh, let's see. Do I have? I mean, we powered through this. i so the stage I'm trying to set is. I mean, th- this is a process of gangsterism that took place in a certain place at a certain time. So you have the, the old stock Anglo elite who basically for a time came to you know, supremacy over every part of the world except for the USSR. And this was because they were able to contribute to the crushing of Europe, the provisional European uh, renewal that took place in 1933 and they were left with something that got out of their own hands too. But I think people do know the story of that. Again, like I said, just look at the roster in recent years of skull and bones. I mean, just look at these people now. It isn't, you know, they weren't able to maintain if, if the idea really was, you know, wasp America first and foremost, Well, they wouldn't, they wouldn't be looking and behaving the way that they do today. But I wanted to talk uh, an extensive series about the drugs. Because now, now that we've set the scene for this, this is something I've talked about in the past, but I want to talk about how how drugs play into foreign policy and why it is that somebody, because Adam also, I, I don't remember if I responded correctly to this, but Adam was talking about Iran-Contra and Bush, because Bush really is, The Bush family is the perfect, you know, avatar for what we're discussing here. And it's worth saying that, too, in the case of the Iran Contra, what you had was him running point on it. And then when the investigation comes around, well, who heads the investigation? Um, It was Kerry, right? Yep. It was John Kerry. You know, I mean, (laughs) this is how they play the game. and it, It worked pretty well, but they're giving up everything in the process. I mean, it's not. It doesn't have a very long-term future for them, as them. I mean, yeah, their kids, I guess, will continue to be alright as long as the system maintains itself. But still, new blood will keep coming in from the other parts of the neo-colonial empire. Uh, you know, you'll have the the Chinese and the other in various other coloreds and stuff coming in to see. Yeah. I'm sure you'll have a point where you have skull and bones. This the 15 initiates into the skull and bones are all coloreds or Jews. (laughs) Uh, uh.
1: It's getting pretty hard to find, uh, you know, if you throw a, uh, if you throw a dart on campus to hit a, uh, a straight white Gentile male on uh, any of these campuses.
2: Right, and it's it's so much for the like arch Anglophile plot to like to to have Anglo
1: Anglophiles.
2: (laughs) I think Sutton meant well. I don't know about quickly. I have no idea. I mean, you can only guess.
1: Um, Okay, so like when you say Anglophile, you can also you can be a little bit more charitable than we're being. Like you can you can say like okay Anglophile, like a lover of England. I mean it's not like oh the verdant green grass is like what I'm really pining for. It's <laughs> there there's a there's a pre existing power structure that you're attempting yeah. to affiliate with. Yeah, but correct. you know, eventually if you affiliate hard enough, you become the power structure. That's the goal, right? That's the point. Yeah. So it's, it, it's not inaccurate to say that like uh oh, Anglophile elites. I mean it's The the supplanters of the British Empire, like that would be an equally valid phrasing, Um, probably a little bit more accurate, not like, you know, crumpet enthusiasts,
2: the the parasites, the vampires, the Jews, they were able to use the British Empire to Oh, a
1: shitload of uh, Jewish Anglophiles. Yeah, I exactly. mean, there's right. there's very few people more anglophiliac yeah. than the uh, than the Rothschilds. Or when,
2: when that was dead, and Europe was in ruins, and the former empires were gone, they were able to use America. And we're at the midway point of this story. Where what's left? I mean, these are families from the 1600s. I mean, my ancestors came here at the same time. I don't have any bonesmen in the family, but I mean, this is what's. This has been a, a five hundred almost a five hundred year trip, and it's it's coming to an end the same way. It'll, it'll end in ruin and it'll end in a fucking rising tide of color and decay and filth. And uh, it'll be an ugly fucking scene. And this is what we have to look for. <laughs> this is the new world order. Thank you.